Beloved congregation of the Lord, will you read with me again in Acts chapter 13 and verses 38 and 39. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that though this man, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Well, beloved congregation, when we would seek to be used by God, it can sometimes be astonishing the kind of opportunities the Lord puts in our path. When the Apostle Paul was called to be a preacher of the word and was traveling through Antioch in Asia Minor, he was uh, gathered there with a number of Jews in a synagogue among not the Jews in the actual region of the Promised Land, but those who had been spread out, the diaspora. And on the seventh day of the week, the Jewish Sabbath of the Old covenant the person who is leading the service he reads some scripture from the books of Moses and from the prophets and he asks is there anyone here who can give an encouraging word well there is Paul freshly converted called unto the gospel ministry and he says yes I would have something to share with you and then comes forth This first sermon from the apostle that is recorded in the book of Acts. Rich in biblical theology. Holding forth that plan of redemption which holds together in the Lord Jesus. The son of David as he particularly draws out. And he points out to these people who are spread out far away from the, uh, the action there in Jerusalem, what it was that the Jewish leaders had done, how they had falsely accused the Lord Jesus, how they had agitated for his execution. But all this in fulfillment of the prophets, in fulfillment indeed of that wonderful promise that holds together all of the promises, that of the forgiveness of sins through the Messiah. And in this connection, the apostle uses a word that we call very typically Pauline. That is, it's it's filled within the books of Paul in particular, but other books of the Bible as well. He speaks of justification. By him all that believe, that have faith, are justified from all things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Justification. This is a grace about which we must give close attention. Wherever this devil would seek to destroy the church, he brings confusion about the doctrine of justification. It's around this uh, time of year that we remember the contribution of Martin Luther, who by the grace of God 
was able through careful study of the scriptures and through the proclamation of that gospel tear down all of the false religion of Roman Catholicism and liberate the Lord's people unto the purity of the Reformation. So it's fitting that in our series through the Heidelberg Catechism, we've come to that section which gives careful um, summary and explanation of this doctrine. What a delight it is to study this together. And you can follow along as we consider not only uh, the text of Acts 13, verse 39, but as well, uh, Lord's Day 23, as it's found on page 51 at the back of your Psalters. And with the Lord's help, we'll consider a number of passages that unfold this glorious doctrine of justification. Our theme is the grace of justification. The grace of justification. And our two points, very simply, are its meaning and its cause. The meaning of justification and the cause of justification. Well, in this part of our series through the doctrines of the Heidelberg Catechism, we've come to a bit of a milestone. We're going through for... Um, the better part of this whole year and a little bit into the year previous through especially those uh, summaries of the gospel in the Apostles' Creed. By the reckoning of the Reformed Church, the Apostles' Creed is so precious because it summarizes all the doctrines of the gospel. Those 12 articles encapsulate the multifaceted beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I've gone through all of them, and now the instructor who's writing this catechism, he wants to make sure that we're understanding properly. He asks this in question 59, what does it profit you now that you believe all this? How terrible it would be if we would just said, well, yes, we've come to the conclusion, and then we move on without therefore asking How does this benefit us? How does this bless us if we rightly receive it? And the answer is found here, that I am righteous before God and an heir of eternal life. And so it is, we're plunged right into the deep theology of justification. Justification, the meaning of it, uh, to begin to get a handle on it is, A legal standing, a legal status where a sinner is declared righteous. Now, what is it that I mean by that? Well, we're immediately thinking in the terms of a law court, a law court. If you were to get in trouble with the law, if you were to break a law on the criminal code of Canada, you may be brought before a judge a judge who would have to decide whether it was you've broken the law or not. We're dealing with the legal nature of that relation. It's in that connection that, of course, judges, temporal judges, are strictly commanded by God to rule according to the standard of perfect justice. He says in Proverbs 
17, verse 15, he that justifieth the wicked and he that condemneth the just, even they both are an abomination to the Lord. So a judge who would allow a guilty offender to go free and a judge who would condemn an innocent person, both of them are rightly judged by God. And in that verse, when you look at the word for justification, which is rightly translated in our Bible, and you would look, for example, at the Greek translation of the book of Proverbs, you would see that the Apostle Paul takes up this very same word in the course of his great works of theology in Galatians and Romans and so on, often using this word um, justify. And so the key text that many of us think of perhaps would be Romans chapter 8, verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. So where you say, who's going to bring a charge against these people, against the elect of God, we're again using this legal language. We're saying that God has made his verdict. He has declared them to be just. And therefore, none can answer before this judgment. It is final and it is just. And that's certainly what we also get in uh, the text that is before us here in Acts chapter 13. Where he says, be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which they could not be justified by the law of Moses. A couple things to note here. Here, the way Paul uses it, he uses justification and forgiveness of sins in parallel. And that's, that's a good place to begin to, to think about this because whenever we think about God forgiving, or in, as it's sometimes used in the King James, remitting sins, we're talking about God not holding sin against you. It's a legal thing. He's not going to hold a charge of sin against you if sin is forgiven. And so that's, that's certainly bound up with what he speaks of justification. But certainly there's more here. For he says that this is not a justification which is by the law of Moses. The law of Moses, as you may know, in texts like Leviticus 18, speaks about a kind of justification which might be possible through the law. Where, for example... Moses says that the one who does these things shall live by them. Would you want to be righteous and blessed by God, perfectly comport with the demands of the law? Well, we know how far we fall short of that standard. We fall short in everything. In thought, word, and deed, we cannot keep the law. We cannot be justified by the law. And so there is rather a justification that comes through the gospel, a legal status. 
And you notice how the catechism draws this out so beautifully in question six. If you look in the middle there where it, where it speaks of notwithstanding God without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. First thing I want you to notice there is impute. This is a legal language. There's a declaration by a judge that such a person is righteous in terms of his legal standing. So that's the first thing I want us to grasp our mind around. But here's, here's the second that is equally important, and that is that it is an alien righteousness that we are speaking of. The, the righteousness whereby you are just and declared to be such in the sight of God is not according to a righteousness which is in you. It is, as Luther said, an alien righteousness. And children, I don't want you to think of some crazy story about space aliens. That's not what we're talking about, alien righteousness. No, we're talking about a righteousness which is not found in you, but found in another. It's found in another. And so this is what Paul is is saying here. Where it says, be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, this one, the Lord Jesus, the son of David, the son of God, the crucified and risen Savior, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. It is a righteousness which is found in Jesus Christ, which is accomplished by him. This is what we see in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 8. Paul reflects upon his past life as a Pharisee and his current life as a Christian. And this is how he sums it up in Philippians 3 verse 8. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. This is, as we're trying to get even just a basic meaning, a definition here, these are the things you must understand. It's a legal status that you are declared righteous, but it is a righteousness that is alien to you, that is not found in you. It is found in Christ. I think that perhaps the the way to understand this and to to really banish from our thoughts any thoughts that, that justification concerns Anything in us is to think of that wonderful parable which the Lord Jesus told concerning the, um, the Pharisee and the publican or the tax collector. There in Luke chapter 17, verse 9, you, you find that parable, and this is what, what it says. 
And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not so much as lift up his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, says Jesus, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased. And he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. In these things, congregation, we don't at all take away what we said this morning. There is a true righteousness and obedience in the Christian that comes through the Holy Ghost. There is true righteousness that is in you. But that is not what we speak of in justification at all. That publican who was humbled such that he could say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He knows, along with Paul, that there is nothing in him that can stand against the strict searching eye of an all-holy God. No. All of our righteousness, if it's subjected to that standard, even after grace, it is as filthy rags in the sight of this holy God who is a consuming fire. No, it's only this, the alien righteousness of Christ received by a needy sinner. That is how a sinner is declared righteous and justified. Thus, we've seen something of the definition, the meaning of this. And what I'd like to do here now is Uh, try to explain it again, but this way looking at the cause of justification, the cause of justification, because I think that as we see what causes justification, we're more likely to have a clear apprehension of the biblical teaching and benefit from it. Consider again what we have here in uh, question 60, rather. How art thou righteous before God? Only by a true faith in Jesus Christ, so that though my conscience accuse me that I have grossly, extremely transgressed all the commandments of God and kept none of them. Isn't that what we've been saying? Nothing that we do can withstand the perfect justice of God. And I'm still inclined to all evil, notwithstanding God, without any merit of mine, without anything good that I do, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Even so, as if I never had had nor committed any sin, Yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me. And as much as I embrace such benefit with a believing heart. 
Now, earlier I said that if you want to have some understanding of this, it's, begin, it's good to begin with forgiveness. You know, that word forgiveness comes up much more often in books like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts, and the word justification. And you ought to understand that wherever forgiveness of sins is spoken of, then justification is always implied. You think of that paraplegic who is lower down from the roof and uh, by his four friends, and Jesus looked at him and said, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins are forgiven thee. Well, there is the grace of justification. But we are likely to get confused if we just think all that is implied is that there is not of a holding of debt against you, as though God regards you as not guilty. No. As the Catechism says, it's more than that. You are righteous, as though you had perfectly kept all of God's commandments. This is where the grace of justification is fully answerable to the needs of the sinner, as well as the justice and mercy of God. All things hold together here. We are on sacred ground. But as I said, it's good that we look at the causes of this to to really have these things soundly imprinted upon our mind. The first thing I would want to say is this. If we're going to make sense of this and what causes the grace of justification, we need to begin with the electing mercy of God, the electing mercy of God. And indeed, there are passages where it seems very clear that the justification of sinners is an eternal reality because God has appointed those who would be justified from eternity. You think, for example, of 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, where speaking of God, it says, who hath saved us, And called us with his holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. And so there you have it as though it was already a reality before the world began. Of course, the language is very similar to what you have in, for example, Ephesians 1, verse 4, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And I mention this because not a few um, great theologians have made this conclusion that our justification is an eternal reality. They speak of an eternal justification. So according to... To this understanding, it is not faith that justifies. No, it is only the eternal counsel of God. And so, for example, the the man who had found what became the Christian Reformed Churches, a brilliant man by the name of Abraham Kuyper, he taught this understanding of eternal justification. And one of the, the consequences of some of his followers of this would, would be that, that really you don't preach the gospel in order to save people, but to make them aware of the fact that they are already saved. Some of the 
the, uh, certainly to me, strange things that come from that. And what you find is many of the, um, the great Reformed Baptist theologians seem to have also gone down this road. John Gill, who is the predecessor of Charles Spurgeon there in the London Tabernacle, you can read his systematics, he defends this and it comes up in his commentaries. You see it in uh, later uh, Baptists like uh, J.C. Philpott, and some Reformed denominations also teach this. Justification, they say, is eternal. What do we say to this? Well, we say that it is, is not in keeping with the Scripture. Yes, there is, a, there is an eternal dimension to justification because God's salvation is appointed from eternity in his loving and merciful electing decree. And yet we must also compare Scripture with Scripture, saying with 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed from death unto life. We have passed from death unto life. There is something real that happens upon your calling through the gospel, your, your salvation by faith in the gospel. That is more than just an awareness that you're already saved. No, you are actually saved through the preaching of the gospel. And yet we at the same time would want to say that it's according to the electing mercy of God that this grace of justification comes about. We say in the second place that the cause of justification is not only the electing mercy of God, but the obedience of Christ. And this gets back to what we were saying. It is an alien righteousness, an alien, a righteousness not found in ourselves because it is the righteousness of Christ. And so you find this spoken about very distinctly in passages like Romans 5, verses 8 to 10. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And if you're listening carefully through that language, the language in verse 9, being justified by his blood, by his death. And there in, uh, in verse 10, um, reconciled to God by the death of his son. What you see is that the Bible is comfortable speaking in this way. When were you justified, Christian? Well, you were justified 2,000 years ago when a man named Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, paid the penalty for your sin upon the cross. And that, obviously, not removing it from his righteous life, but altogether, his active obedience and conformity to the law, his passive obedience and suffering the penalty for our sins, all of this amounts to the obedience and the righteousness of Christ wherewith we are justified. Many other passages come to mind. Colossians 1 verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 2, same book, verses 13 to 14, 
having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Do you want to know where your sins have gone, Christian? All of the handwriting of the ordinances, all of the condemnation of the law against you, it's all been nailed to the cross. It's all been executed, all been exterminated. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing, do you hear the legal language here, imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. And perhaps that central text, Romans 5, verse 17, for if by one man's offense, speaking of Adam, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one. Jesus Christ. Indeed, let us never be confused about this congregation. It is the righteousness of Christ satisfying the demands of the law. Everything that God ever required of you and more was done by Jesus Christ. And he not only as a private person, but as a public person, as the head of his church, as the surety, as the representative of his people. He has done it all, just as Adam brought death and condemnation unto you by his disobedience. Christ, by his perfect obedience, has brought righteousness unto all who receive him, all those for whom it is appointed for, all of his spiritual body of the church. They are found righteous in him. And this is why where we would preach of Jesus Christ, his person and his work, this is not just historical interest. This concerns you and I. Are we found in Christ Jesus? Did he die for us? Well, this brings us to that third uh, cause of justification, and that is faith. In what sense may we speak of faith as a cause of our justification? Well, some evangelical circles, and if you talk to people who come out of these kinds of churches, what you're going to notice is that there is this often confusion that lapses, whereby they speak in a way or even think in a way that says that the way that faith justifies is like this. God has required of you that you obey his law, but you haven't done it. So instead of that, God gives you a second law. And he says, well, you couldn't do this number of things for me, so I want you to do this something else for me. I want you to have faith in the gospel. And, and that faith, you see, is, is what is going to make up for all of the sins that you've committed. And if that seems like a strange thing to you, I I don't blame you at all. What kind of just God could take your weak, flickering faith, Christian, as a substitute for your sin? 
How is it that faith, that believing in the gospel, how is it that the act of the heart could justify anyone? Indeed, that is the question that our catechism asks and answers with great uh, clarity there in 61. Why do you say that you are righteous by faith only? Answer, not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith. So not as though there's anything in your faith that's worthy or deserving of any regard from God, but because only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God, and that I cannot receive and apply the same to myself any other way than by faith only. What you see here is that faith has that quality not as a cause in the same way that the electing love of God is a cause, not in the same way that the death and righteousness of Christ is a cause, but in a very limited way, as an instrument that applies the righteousness of Christ unto us. That is the sense in which faith is a cause of our justification. It is but the empty hand of a beggar that is seeking bread. That is what is in view here. And where you would see passages that speak about faith in the gospel as justifying you notice that it is always bound up either by its immediate context or by the larger argument of the scriptures with the electing love of God and the righteousness of Christ. Romans 3 is the central text, I think. A longer passage, but I want you to see the flow of the argument here. Romans 3, verses 24 to 26. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath sent forth to be a propitiation, a satisfaction through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission or forgiveness of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God to declare, I say, at this time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. You see, Christian, God has appointed this means whereby you can be saved, not through something that you will do that will accomplish anything that will bring any worth or virtue to your account. No, faith is a very weak thing. It is something that simply receives, that receives that free gift of what God has done for you in Christ. He proposes this condition, we could say, of faith, not because it is something that merits or earns anything, but no, it disposes you in order that you may apply the righteousness of Christ unto yourself. And this is what unites you unto your Savior. It's something that sometimes I I pondered in seminary. Well, we know, of course, that faith is something that we do. It is an act of the will. It's an act of the heart. We do trust in Christ. Isn't it not a work? 
Isn't it something, however small, however tiny, it is something that we are doing? How is it we make sense of the testimony of scriptures where it says in Romans chapter 4, verses 4 to 5, now to him, now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth, but his faith on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. The explanation, Christian, is not that your faith is not a work, but it is not regarded as a work where the gospel is concerned. Nothing about you is regarded where your justification is concerned. The faith which you grasp hold of Christ, it is simply the instrument of receiving his righteousness. And what is the sum of it all, congregation? Some of it all of it all is back exactly where we began in this section of the catechism. I am righteous in Christ before God and an heir of eternal life. It is something that most glorifies the Lord. It glorifies his son Jesus Christ when a Christian can say that. Nothing in me, nothing in my hands I bring. Only to his cross I cling. May it please the Lord God to give you that confession as well today. Not only the words, but the very substance of it, that you would know that there is now no condemnation 